0: You're listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally.
1: Hello, this is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. We recently had the very good fortune of moderating BMO Financial Group's official COVID-19 coronavirus event entitled Where Are We and What Comes Next. It was a panel discussion featuring Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer at WebMD, and Dr. Allison McGear, a senior clinician scientist at lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute in Sinai Health in Toronto, as well as myself, Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist, Michael Gregory, Deputy Chief Economist, and Margaret Cairns, Head of Fixed Income, Currency, and Commodity Strategy at BMO Capital Markets. As regions across Canada and the United States look to deploy vaccines against COVID-19, the panel discussed how we're managing through the pandemic from a health, markets, and macroeconomic perspective and commentary provided on the outlook. We had the very good fortune to have the opportunity to have both doctors not only give their own presentations, but interact with each other. Here are comments from Dr. John White and Dr. Allison McGear.
2: Well, good morning, Brian, and good morning, everyone. And I'm going to start off by telling you where we are and maybe uh, leave you with some predictions about the future. And I think this is really good news. As you all know, the FDA authorized the covid Nineteen vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech on Friday night, and basically what it talked about was that it is a safe vaccine, and that it is ninety-five percent effective in preventing symptomatic COVID nineteen infection, and that is really big news. as As Brian had mentioned, um, it has already started it in terms of the vaccination of persons today. Uh, It had previously been authorized in the UK, in Canada, and some Middle Eastern countries. But I also want to talk about what else the FDA recently put out in a fact sheet, because some people have brought up this issue of the severe allergic reactions that we saw in the UK. And I just want to read it. It said that people with a history of allergies, but not for those who might have a known history of severe allergic reaction to any of the components. So just because you have allergies doesn't mean that you would not get the vaccine, but if you have severe allergic reaction to the ingredients. So, you know, I printed out the ingredients because everyone has been asking me, what's in the vaccine? And it's really very little. It's obviously the mRNA I'm going to come back to. It's lipids, which really is a suspension for the vaccine. It's salt and it's sugar. So I want to put it all out there because sometimes there's misinformation, particularly about the ingredients. Um, the FDA also said that there was insufficient evidence for pregnant women or women who are lactating. There's no absolute contraindication, but women who are pregnant or lactating or want to discuss it with their doctor. Now Pfizer did say that starting in January, they're gonna study it in persons of less than 16 years of age because the vaccine is authorized for persons older than 16 uh, and it's also going to study it in pregnant women. So the big news is, you know, 2.9 million doses being sent out right away. That's over 145 sites today, 425 sites tomorrow, 66 sites on Wednesday. 2.9 million doses Right now, there's another 2.9 million doses, because remember, this is two shots, and then some are held in reserve. The CDC did make recommendations about prioritization in terms of health professionals and those that live in long-term care facilities and those that work in long-term care facilities are first. But ultimately, the states and local jurisdictions are deciding exactly how that's going to be given out. Some of them are doing it at the same time. For me, I work in an outpatient facility. Some places are deciding they're first going to do hospitals and then those that work in clinics. So there's going to be a little bit of differences a- across the different regions in the United States. We'll then have 25 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine by the end of this month, the end of the year, 25 million. That basically will be for 12 million persons because remember it's two shots and then a hundred million doses by March or April. It is going to be free in the United States under the CARES Act. There may be an administrative charge administering the vaccine, but insurance companies are going to pick that up. So that's important to put it out there. Remember, I mentioned a couple times it's two doses separated by about 21 days. We think you may have 50% immunity after the first dose, and then that 95% immunity about a week after you have the second dose. So before you have the immunity that we really want, it's going to take about um, you know four weeks because you're going to have to wait till after you got that second shot. How long? You're going to have immunity for. We don't know. We're hoping it's several years. We're hoping it's not like influenza, and I don't think it will be. But remember, these studies are going on for two more years, so we're going to continue to find out more information. The other point I want to put out is by law, an emergency use authorization considers the drug investigational. And I point this out because there's some discussion whether this vaccine will be mandatory. I don't think it will be, partly because of that investigational designation. And at the same time, we want to inspire confidence. Use the carrot, not the stick. That I'll come back to. Um, but I also want to point out that Pfizer did announce that in April, it'll apply for full um, biological uh, author, application which is called a BLA so full approval but there's still more good news because as you may know Moderna's vaccine is going to be reviewed by the FDA this week on December 17th so that's encouraging that's also an mRNA vaccine and just in 30 seconds I want to describe what, how the mRNA vaccine works. mRNA we're inserting a piece of genetic material that is going to create the spike protein, it's called coronavirus because it has a crown. And these spikes are actually what allows the virus to get into your body, to get into your lung, to get into your blood vessels. So if I create using the code to make this spike protein, which isn't harmful, then when I actually come into contact with COVID-19, I'm going to map an immune response and protect myself. So that's how that works. But there's also other type of vaccine candidates. J&J has what's called an adenovirus. That's going to um, be looked at by FDA in February. They expect to apply for the EUA. They recently announced they're going down from 60,000 persons in a phase three trial of 40,000, recognizing we need to be moving on this. AstraZeneca, you may have heard about, is also an adenovirus. They've had some challenges in the interpretation of the data. First, it seemed to be about 60 to 70% effective, but that was with a half dose followed by a full dose. Didn't completely make sense. Maybe 90%. um, That was 60% at first. And then Uh, The half dose and the other doses all gets very confusing. So even I'm confused reporting it. So we're gonna have to learn more about that. But the key about these two viruses, the adenovirus, is that it doesn't require that super cold temperature. Logistically, it's going to be easier uh, to administer, and that might be very relevant for the developing world. The other thing is J and J has both a single dose regimen. That's what they originally started with, but they're also testing a two-dose regimen as well. And then Sanofi and GSK also have a vaccine candidate. They've had some challenges with the formulation, and and they probably are much further uh, in third and fourth quarter in 2021. But the point is, this really is a game changer in our desire to crush COVID-19. It's not the only strategy that we can use. First of all, we still need to do the mask wearing, the physical distancing, the hand washing, avoiding large gatherings. It's going to be several months before we really see the impact of wide scale immunization, but it really is light at the end of the tunnel. I feel very good today about where we are. We've been limping along, and this really gives us a comprehensive strategy. And the reason why I say that is we focus a lot on vaccine development, but Operation Warp Speed is also about therapeutics as well. And we're continuing to study therapeutics. I expect we're going to have a much more aggressive testing strategy as well. We've had direct-to-consumer authorization of COVID tests. We've had self-collection at home Recently authorized. So we have a lot more strategies than we did before. And what I also want to end with is this really is a success story of innovation, of science, of engineering. We should be celebrating the progress and the success that we have, not just in vaccine development, but also where we are. In therapeutic actions as well, and testing. So it's really exciting where we are in in terms of just over nine or ten months. And I'm going to come back to this when we talk a little more about vaccine confidence. Let's celebrate the innovation that we have. The scientists, the engineer, the doctors, as well appreciate all the frontline workers, the health professionals, the bus drivers, the essential workers law enforcement. It's been a, a long process over the past 10 months, but we're in a much better place by far today than we were just a week ago. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Brian.
1: Thank you, Dr. White. Yes, I think we should celebrate and we need to uh, all over the world. So with that, I'm going to hand the ball off to Dr. Allison McGear, who is a Canadian infectious disease specialist at the Sinai Health System a professor at Dalalana School of Public Health and a senior clinic, clinician I'm sorry scientist at the Lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute Dr. McGear has led investigations into the severe acute respiratory syndrome outbreak in Toronto and worked alongside Donald Lowe during the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. McGear has studied how SARS-CoV-2 survives in the, in the air. And with that, Dr. McGear, it's all
3: yours. So uh, the first thing I want to start with, this is absolutely a day for celebrating. Um, it is incredibly exciting to be watching the vaccine rollout in, in Canada and the United States. Uh, and uh, as has been pointed out, uh, a triumph of literally warp speed for the development of vaccines to get us out of this pandemic. But uh, maybe it's just being Canadian. I want to spend just a minute talking about the tunnel before we get to the light at the end of it. Um, because one of the things we need to be really careful about in the next three months is that we don't get so excited about the vaccine um, that we lose control of the pandemic in between. So this slide shows you uh, our current incidence per capita in Canada. One of the things you have to recognize about Canada is we, we may think we're one country but really we're 13. Um, and you can see on this slide that over on the on the right hand side is our Atlantic bubble with very very low rates of COVID 19, really great success story of controlling transmission. Um, and on the left hand side, uh, Alberta, our province, with the current most difficulty. Um, In Alberta, we are already well over our ICU capacity. It's important to remember that we have much less flex in hospital beds and ICU beds in Canada than the United States does, so we hit uh, our our limits much more quickly, and Alberta is is clearly going to be in very difficult healthcare circumstances uh, for the next two months at least. Um, And just to give you a sense of how we compare to the United States, this is that Rhode Island was the top last week in terms of incidents, Hawaii was the bottom, Um, and you can see that um, Canada is well down the list, but we're not that dramatically different from from rates in many American states. And the big question, of course, is how much trouble are we going to be in? So... In Canada, what we're looking at at the moment is we have, we, we started our increase in COVID in the middle of October, shortly after Thanksgiving holidays, uh, and we have gradually in each province at slightly different times been increasing our COVID control measures, um, and that has slowed the rate of growth, but it hasn't stopped it. So we're sitting in Canada at the moment at a reproductive ratio just a little bit above one. Pretty consistently, cases are still climbing, but they're climbing very slowly. And all of us are living in fear that over the holiday time, people will just not be able to bear to maintain social distancing. And that the consequence of that is that we'll start to see cases increase. Remember, there's a lag time between when people are exposed and when you start to see cases, which is 10 days to two weeks, three weeks to hospitalization, four weeks to ICU. So people are very worried, particularly in Alberta with very high rates, that we're going to have a serious problem with intensive care unit capacity and healthcare capacity in general in February and March. Um, so you hear now the plea going out from public health authorities and politicians all across the country to say, just see if you can delay Christmas, do your holidays virtually um, so that we don't get into uh, a crisis in healthcare in January, February, March, and we don't have this large excess of deaths that if we can delay them will be prevented by vaccines. Uh, And then as with the United States, okay, we have before the end of December 294,000 doses of vaccine coming to Canada. So that's just about exactly the same rate per population as Americans are getting. Um, And uh, like you, the Pfizer and Biotech vaccine coming first. Hopefully Moderna will get approved um, this week. And then I'm told that it will start coming next week. Um, And that's really helpful to us because our uh, protocols for vaccination in Canada start with long-term care residents. And Pfizer has been so worried about the stability of their vaccine in transport, particularly when it's thawed, um, that we are only giving Pfizer vaccines at specific health centers. That means we can move staff to those health centers but we can't move obviously residents of long-term care. And so the residents of long-term care who are right at the top of our list um, are not gonna be able to get vaccine probably until either the Moderna vaccine comes in or Pfizer uh, gets enough stability data to allow vaccines to be thawed and moved outside of centers when they're thawed. Where are we going from here? Well. As Dr. White has already said, there's going to be a little bit of variability between provinces and what we do. In Ontario, we're very clear that our major problem at the moment is in long-term care, and we will be focused on residents of long-term care, healthcare workers in long-term care, essential caregivers for long-term care. Alberta, on the other hand, which has a much bigger problem in acute care at the moment, is going to start with acute care hospital health care workers, and that makes sense. Um, and all of us are then going to be trying to deliver as much vaccine to our designated high-risk groups as we can. Again, a a little bit of of a breather, those of us who are not in those high-risk groups are going to have to wait. If you add up all of our high-risk groups in Canada, the the first tranche of vaccine, uh, that means we need 6.4 million doses of vaccine, everybody gets vaccinated. Uh, And that's how much vaccine we expect to have by the end of March. So it's going to be the end of March before we are through the first high priority group. Getting to that group will allow us to get health care back. It will stop deaths in our long-term care facilities. Hopefully it will stop outbreaks in our long-term care facilities. Uh, And then we will be able to move on to the, the vaccination program for everybody else which will get us our life back and 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 normal life back, um, but that's going to take probably until sometime in September and October. So it's really a an incredibly exciting time to watch. Um, but it's also we also need to be taking a breath and saying, okay, we just need to be keeping this up for another five or six months until we get enough people vaccinated to slow the spread. Thank you.
1: So much, Dr. McGear. I think we're going to shift now to uh, back and forth between the two doctors, if that would be all right. And Dr. White, listening to Dr. McGear's comments and knowing what you know about Canada and everything that's all wrapped up into the last 12 or 10 months, I'm sorry. Is there something you'd like to uh, interject or speak with Dr. McGeer uh, now that you have uh, this forum?
2: You know, I think the issue here has been... Uh, vaccine confidence. Are people willing to take the vaccine? And that's why I talked about celebrating innovation. As many people know, there there has been in some ways an attack on science. And some days I feel like instead of saying, I don't understand science, people are saying, I don't trust science. So I, I was wondering your thoughts on kind of the cultural differences that exist, even though we're neighbors between Canada and the United States, and, and whether you think Acceptance of the vaccine will be a challenge in Canada, as we're concerned it might be here in the United States.
3: I, I do think acceptance of the vaccine is going to be a challenge. You know, this is this is new technology. This is a new disease. This is a new vaccine, um, and of course, people are worried about it and have questions about it. Uh, I think our success in vaccination is going to be in how well we communicate. What's been going on with the vaccine, why it's come so fast, um, why it kind of looks like it's rushed when in fact, it, it although it's rushed, it's actually very carefully rushed. Um, and it's also going to depend on, on what happens with the rollout and, and how we manage it. You know, there every year when we do influenza vaccination campaigns, something happens that causes you to worry about the influenza vaccine. And how we deal with that in public health, how the media deals with that, um, really has a huge impact on what happens with vaccination programs. So I think one of the things is in in all countries, we can expect a bumpy ride. Okay, This is going to be a, there are going to be some adverse events, probably not associated with the vaccine, but you're not going to know that for sure when they start. Um, there's going to be children who die from COVID that are going to drive up demand, so, so I think demand is going to ebb and flow as the news cycle ebbs and flows. Um, but it's also really going to be very heavily dependent on how well we do as a profession um, in, in medicine and nursing in communicating information about these vaccines um, and their efficacy and safety to people. That's, a, that, that's on us for the next six or nine months.
2: No, I agree. You know, I, I almost hesitate to say the word genetic material. Because people get concerned, and I, I purposely didn't say it was a chimpan- chimpanzee adenovirus. Do you think language matters a lot here? I think we have to be transparent and put the data out there, and even if people aren't experts, for it to be out there so they can look and see themselves. But does that worry you at all in, in, in terms of kind of the language that we use at
3: times? I think you know there's there's a lot of things about the specific technical language you use in vaccines that is guaranteed to make people anxious. It's easy to get upset about, you know, if you, you, you can, so I can say to you, okay, Pfizer vaccine has very few things in it um, and they're lipid and salt and sucrose. Um, and then you go online and one of those lipid names has 27 syllables um, and it just looks dangerous when you look at it you know and and then it, it it takes trust in a chemist who can just say to you oh yeah you know here here's the chemical components of that and that's pretty simple and that's just something that gives you a long chain that makes little micelles to protect the mrna to get it in cells and and it kind of makes sense but the you know there's no doubt that when you get into technical language um that it can be relatively scary for people i think we're better off just to tolerate that. I think we have to, it's going to be available online. People are going to see it. We, we have to get people sort of up to speed on this. You know, I when I was talking earlier, I used the term reproductive ratio, you know, and who would have thought that 11 months ago that I could say reproductive ratio to anybody in the world and they would know what it was. Right, So I I think we're going to be like that about vaccines. And that's going to be a really good thing for vaccination going forward because we start to have this discussion in detail about understanding what's in your vaccines. That can only be good in the long term. What do you think? You think how much trouble are we going to be in with with vaccine hesitancy in the United States?
2: I think it's going to be a challenge, particularly in minority populations, where there has historically been a distrust. But I am confident that as we have this transparency, as scientific experts talk about how it's not rushed, and that we also weigh risk versus benefit. Let's be honest, we all want schools fully reopened. We all want businesses reopened. And anything that we can all do to contribute to returning to some sense of normal, I think at the end, most folks are going to get behind. And in the media world, we have to be careful to put it into context. You're right, people are going to have some adverse reactions. There's going to be some logistic challenges, just as we saw in testing, just as we saw in PPE. We're going to have to be patient, but recognize a lot of people have been comparing COVID to, you know, a house fire. And we have to treat it as that house fire and quash it all at once and the vaccine is going to give us one of those strategies in combination with improved testing and improved therapeutics.
1: As always please refer to BMO Capital Markets website at bmocm.com for the associated disclosures and of course if you have any medical issues please reach out to a medical professional as soon as possible. Content from both Dr. White and Dr. McGear will be on the website as well as information published from Mr. Gregory and Ms. Cairns as well as ourselves. With respect to our outlook uh, for the United States stock market and the Canadian stock market, we recently published our year ahead piece for both countries on November 19th. We expect the S&P 500 to retain a $4,200 price target on earnings of $170 by year-end 2021 and a price target for the S&P TSX index, which is the proper index for Canada at $19,500 and $1,100 of earnings respectively. The bull market continues with respect to our 20-year bull market, which we believe was reset on March 23rd, 2020 in the United States, and the next 10 years is off and running. While Canada, we continue to believe is undiscovered value, where it'd be a quote-unquote backdoor opportunity to buy the United States cheaper. Again, if you have any issues and questions based on the subject matter that you heard on this podcast, please look at the www.bmocm.com for content or reach out to your relationship manager. Thank you so much for listening. Here's to a safe and wonderful holiday season. Stay safe. And again, here's to a great 2021.
0: Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers, or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmo.capitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.